Jewish Education and Media is pleased to present L'Chaim, a program that highlights the people, issues, and events of importance to the Jewish community. Now here is your host, Rabbi Mark Golub. I'm Mark Golub, and in the aftermath of the presidential elections, the vast majority of American Jews are celebrating both the end of Donald Trump's presidency and the start of the Biden-Harris administration's efforts to heal the wounds of bitter divisiveness that so painfully characterize a fractured America. For some 70% of American Jews, the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is a mechaya. Of course, at the same time, 30% of American Jews are deeply disappointed and despair over the end of the Trump administration. And in fact, Jews voted for Donald Trump in greater numbers than had been predicted. The Jewish vote for Donald Trump jumped up 25% from 2016. And in the state of Florida, the Jewish vote for Trump was a major factor in his winning the state, as 41% of Jews in Florida voted to re-elect the president. And in what may be the most dramatic statistic in the Jewish vote of this election, among Jews who say that their primary concern is the state of Israel and U.S. foreign policy, 87% voted for Donald Trump. And that 87% highlights an issue of enormous concern among those who worry that the Biden-Harris administration will reverse many U.S. policies that pertain to the state of Israel and that there once again will be a conscious effort to create daylight between the United States and Israel. In contrast to the progress made by the Trump administration in Arab-Israeli relations, epitomized by the Abraham Agreement, in which the Arab Emirates and other Arab countries have normalized relations with Israel, many American Jews fear now that Israel will be somehow injured or put in danger by the Biden-Harris perspective on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And these Jews cite things that both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have declared publicly about the policies they intend to implement, such as rejoining the Iran deal, the JCPOA, which many Jews are very much opposed to, especially those who supported Donald Trump. Then in the November 10th edition of the Jerusalem Post, a story reports that President Biden will, quote, erase the gains the Israeli right made over the past four years with regard to Israeli sovereignty over Area C of the West Bank and will reintroduce the concept of a two-state solution at the pre-1967 lines. And shortly before the election, Kamala Harris gave an interview to American Arab News, 
in which she expressed her thoughts on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in writing. And here is what she wrote. Joe and I also believe in the worth and value of every Palestinian and every Israeli. And we will work to ensure that Palestinians and Israelis enjoy equal measures of freedom, security, prosperity, and democracy. We are committed to a two-state solution, and we will oppose any unilateral steps that undermine that goal. We will also oppose annexation and settlement expansion. And we will take immediate steps to restore economic and humanitarian assistance to the Palestinian people, address the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Gaza, reopen the U.S. consulate in East Jerusalem, and work to reopen the PLO mission in Washington. So what is the new Biden-Harris administration likely to mean for the state of Israel? And what might it mean for the day-to-day -day life of American Jewry? Well, for some insight and analysis, I am so pleased to be joined by a wonderful panel. I'm going to introduce them to you. If you're a regular viewer of L'Chaim and JBS, you know them all very well. Steve Baim is one of the Jewish community's leading political and social analysts, and for virtually 40 years served the American Jewish Committee as its Director of Contemporary Jewish Life and the AJC's Koppelman Institute on American-Jewish-Israeli Relations. Eric Yaffe is one of the Jewish community's foremost liberal columnists and lecturers and is President Emeritus of the Union of Reform Judaism, leading the American Jewry's largest congregational organization from 1996 to 2012. David Afun is a leader in the field of Jewish journalism and serves as the editor-in-chief of the online Jewish news organization, The Algeminer. And Betty Ehrenberg is a veteran in Jewish organizational life, having served as executive director for the Institute for Public Affairs, the political action arm of the Union of Orthodox Jewish Congregations of America. And Betty currently serves as the North American executive director of the World Jewish Congress. And it is wonderful to be welcoming each of you back to JBS. You know, due to this COVID pandemic, I haven't had a chance to see you in quite a while. So I thank all of you, especially for joining me for our roundtable discussion. Thank you all very, very much. By the way, before we begin, I want to explain what this edition of L'Chaim is not about. This is not a program to rehash the election, or to talk about Donald Trump or Joe Biden personally. The focus of this roundtable is on how a Biden-Harris administration is now likely to impact the state of Israel and the U.S.-Israeli relationship. And with that said, Eric since you were a vocal supporter of Joe Biden for president. And I can only imagine how wonderful you felt with the Biden victory. 
I want to begin with you. You've heard me express some of the concerns American Jews have about the way in which our new president and vice president might shape U.S. policies vis-a-vis Israel and the Palestinians. What are your thoughts? I'm very optimistic about the administration. Uh, You quoted a a Jerusalem Post article with an implication that the things that were said there should be, um, you know, viewed uh, with concern by American Jews and by Israelis. Uh, That is not my take at all. Uh, I agreed with much of what was said. And in fact, I think it's consistent with uh, what Joe Biden has been saying and fighting for his entire life. Uh, Biden, first of all, is personally friendly and sympathetic to, to Israel. He has a strong history of personal connection uh, to the Jewish state. And uh, I think he's demonstrated that friendship uh, again and again, as, as has been attested by virtually everybody who has worked with him, no matter where they are on, on the political uh, spectrum. In terms of substance, um, he will continue some of the policies of Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, uh, obviously, we need to discuss uh, Iran. Uh, that's uh, a, you know important area that uh, where I, I again don't don't uh, accept the fundamental premise that uh, we need to have uh, profound concerns in that regard. Uh, I'll say here that he uh, is a two state. He supports two states, which means that he supports a Jewish and democratic Israel. Kamala Harris supports two states, which means she supports. Uh, Jewish and democratic Israel. That has always been their position. That should be their position. (laughs) Supporting two states is not contrary to Israel's interest. It it promotes and advances Israel's interest. And uh, the priority of of, uh, the uh, government of Israel at this point, I believe, should be to sit down, to talk to uh, the Biden, uh, to to the president-elect and uh, to his people, particularly those who will be working on Middle Eastern issues, and begin to, to sort out the, the, the three major areas of concern, Iran, Palestinians, normalization. Uh, they, they ought to begin immediately. They ought to do it in a friendly way. They ought to do it uh, understanding that they're dealing with, uh, with somebody who's sympathetic to their concerns and who has embraced Zionism. Uh, and if they do so, I'm very optimistic about uh, what might be the outcome. Very nice. By the way, you know, you heard during the Obama administration, this idea that Obama had created daylight between Israel and the United States. Do you think that Joe Biden's perspective, and by the way, we had Joe, Joe Biden, this is not his first run for president, when we were doing Shalom TV a million years ago, I had the opportunity to interview Joe Biden for a few moments and he was eloquent in describing how he felt inside that he was a Zionist. And that line that was on Shalom TV was picked up by the media throughout the country. Very little we've ever done has been picked up by the media throughout the country. But Joe Biden's comments about his feeling he is a Zionist were ones that were picked up. And so when Eric talks about the extent to which Biden has been known to be a friend of Israel, that is understood. The question becomes, Eric, from those who are uncomfortable, there is worry 
that there is now a far progressive wing of the Democratic Party that is going to pressure Biden to do things he might not do otherwise. So the general question I have for you, and then we'll go to Steve Bain. Do you worry that Biden is of the perspective that there should be daylight between Israel and the United States? So I was at the meeting at the White House and President Obama made that comment. I always feel that I've always felt it's been somewhat interpreted, misinterpreted. We're not going to go there uh, now because we don't have time and it's not really our, our topic today. But I mean, having said that, look, in, in terms of, of Joe Biden, uh, the, the key is this deep visceral connection, which I don't think is, is uh, irrelevant at, at uh, all. Uh, my sister-in-law grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. Her father was a longtime rabbi uh, of, of the major congregation in Wilmington, the largest congregation in the state. So I, I have a whole history and also numerous meetings with Biden. And I can attest to this deep feeling that I mentioned before and that, that uh, you just mentioned in your remarks. Are there elements of the party that we have to be concerned about? And the answer is, of course, of course. My own view is that they're at this point mostly on the fringes. My own view is that Harris and Biden are solid centrists with uh, long ties uh, to Israel and to the Jewish people. Uh, it will be their task to fend off any efforts to move in the direction of anti-Israel policies. I'm optimistic that they can do that. You know, needs, does that need to be on our agenda as, as leaders in the American Jewish community? And the answer is, of course, of course. Those same pressures exist in a different way in the Republican Party as, uh, as well. So I'm not indifferent to it. But again, there's reason for optimism, given, given his, his personal sentiments that are so well established over a half century. Well, I hope people hear the nuance that you just expressed. And we've been on, we, first of all, in addition to being friends forever, we have been on JBS over and over and over again. And... There are times when the issue is such that you take a very hard line. Here, it sounds to me, as happy as you are that Biden is now going to be president of the United States, you are more optimistic, and not only optimistic, you also are acknowledging the extent to which the Jewish community must stay vigilant. And I hope... I hope people have heard what you have to say. Steve, same kind of question. As you look at where we're going, as you hear the concerns of Jews who voted for Trump and who are now worried that Biden-Harris are going to change too much of U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel, what are your thoughts? Well, thank, thank you, uh, Mark. Uh, first, just a word of uh, clarification or, or you know, su supplement. Uh, I agree with much of uh, what Eric says and his optimism. I don't share all of it, or perhaps I'm a couple steps more cautious than he is. Um, just a word of uh, you know, self-definition, self-understanding. I did retire from HAC back in July. Therefore, I'm here today totally in an unofficial capacity, only a personal capacity. Absolutely. Not off the organization. I don't know how much daylight there is between them and, and Eric at this point. There's some daylight between me and him, but not all that much. No, but now you now you are an independent civilian. You got it right. Okay. No, so, I, I but your opinion 
is not one bit diminished. So, by the way, you, in your aside, you make an interesting comment. You're not as optimistic as Eric. We want to know why and where, where is the difference that you feel between you and the position Eric just articulated? I think my two concerns, uh, and he's alluded to both of them, but I think we have perhaps a somewhat different take on them. One is that uh, the success of uh, the U.S.-Israel relationship, uh, the special relationship, has been dependent upon a, an active, vigilant American Jewish community that has fought for a bipartisan relationship with Israel within American politics. One of my concerns over the last few years in general has been the weakening of that bipartisanship. The core of that weakening uh, is frankly within the Democratic Party. Um, 60 years ago, if we were having this discussion, we'd say the Democratic Party is unanimous in its support for Israel. The Republican Party, I'd be worried about its isolationist wing. Today, I think the position is somewhat reversed. The Republican Party is pretty unanimous in its support for Israel. The Democratic Party, I'm concerned about its progressive wing. So one concern I have is, is very simple. Will the American Jewish community, will its leadership, with all of our uh, uh, energies that have been uh, so devoted uh, to the safeguarding of Israel and to the maintenance of a strong U.S.-Israel relationship, Will those same energies still continue, given the, you know, the myriad of other problems we face, not, not excluding by any means the, the virus, the economy? Um, I guess I'm, uh, when I say I'm a little bit less optimistic, I'm saying the American Jewish community should not regard itself as being complacent, as saying we have a great friend in the White House. We do. I agree with Eric's analysis of Biden completely. However, that great friend in the White House and the people around him need to be constantly reminded that the American Jewish community wants U the U.S. and Israel to be as closely aligned as possible. So the bipartisanship um, is something I think we've often lost sight of, but it's critical to the relationship and we have to keep on upholding it. It's no secret in a two-party system, if you put all your eggs in one party, you're going to be disappointed four years, eight years down the road. My second concern also Eric alluded to, and that is what about the progressive wing of the Democratic Party? You know, are they going off in a different direction? He says they're on the fringes. I, I wish that were the case, and I wish I could say that definitively. Number one, there are more of them post-election than there were before the election. Um, number two is that these are younger people. Their future is way ahead of them. The strongest supporters of Israel, frankly, are much more senior, which means at this point in time, they have more leverage. But they're also, their future is not necessarily in front of them at this point. We lost two great friends, Elliot Engel, who was my representative for many years, and Nita Lowy in Westchester. These were the two strongest stalwarts in terms of the pro-Israel coalition or the pro-Israel advocacy group within, within Congress. Missing them is going to hurt. So when I listen to uh, AOC and her cohorts, and they are essentially, uh, her latest thing is to develop a blacklist of uh, people who should not be part of the administration because they're our enemies. Well, that's precisely contrary to Biden's language. Yes, it is. Of, we do not have enemies. We are all Americans. We have political differences that need to be negotiated and discussed. But when you have that militancy coming out, to what extent will it be translated as a foreign policy drift of uh, moving away from a special relationship between the United States and Israel? What that means and how it will be implemented, whether it will come to pass, will Biden resist it? Those are all questions that I have that, again, perhaps temper my optimism, 
but largely I agree. We've got a great president, a great president-elect, and uh, someone who I really uh, believe will, will strengthen and maintain the U.S.-Israel special relationship. Do you appreciate why Jews who supported Trump are now worried that policy will change? I certainly appreciate it. Um, let me put it this way. The question was asked to me a good number of times uh, in the months leading up to the election. My answer, frankly, was uh, somewhat different. And certainly, uh, certainly it's, it's, uh, it's an answer I'd like to share with your audience. Um, I always said those concerns are legitimate. I think anyone who's telling you the concerns are illegitimate, you'd be fooling yourself. Yeah. However, I also said we have a Talmudic phrase of bari v'shema, bari adif, which means essentially if it's a conflict between something that's clear and something that's possible, you go with what's clear. What was clear to me is that the country was becoming increasingly polarized. That's bad for the United States. It's bad for American Jews. I invoke the, uh, the wisdom of the prophet Jeremiah, who uh, addressed a letter to the Babylonian exile some 2,500 years ago. He said, seek the welfare of the town in which you are living, because in the welfare of that town will be the welfare of the Jews. I thought American Jews that put an exclusive emphasis upon Jewish interests um, were misguided in their sense of priorities and balance. They lost track of the larger American position, uh, picture, which was increasingly polarized. Uh, let me put it this way in simple terms. Donald Trump's policies towards Israel in many ways were highly praiseworthy. But at the same time, in terms of American Jewry, or in terms of the Jewish people, in terms of American society, he was a force that aggravated the polarization. He was a divider rather than a uniter. That's why I think Biden has a great future in front of him. The task is very tall, but I really think he's up to it. Betty, you've heard Eric and you've heard Steve. Any thoughts at all? What are your thoughts? Certainly, uh, Vice President Biden has a, an excellent record of support for Israel, his voting record as a senator on pro-Israel legislation is second to none. Uh, we've met with him when he was a senator many times to advocate for certain positions and certain pieces of legislation. Nevertheless, I think it depends on his strength and his strength of character uh, and standing up to the um, parts of the Democratic Party that my colleagues here have been labeling as progressive or is moving more to the left, more to the left, and less towards the way I see it, less towards support of Israel. Um, yes, they are younger and they don't remember uh, the, um, as well the important position that Israel has played in the America-Israel relationship and in the mind and psyche of America let alone its culture and its, uh, its, its, its place in the Middle East and its place in the world. So I am worried about the article that Ms. Kamala Harris wrote in the Arab newspaper. I feel, uh, rather speaking to the Arab American group, um, we, the Trump administration made great strides uh, in trying to bring the onus back onto the Palestinians to make a change. Yes. And now I am afraid that if we go back to, if this administration, the new one administration will go back to refunding them, refunding the PLO office, reopening the uh, uh, consulate in Jerusalem, these step backs will again send the message 
of uh, that they don't have to work terribly hard, that they don't have to make many concessions, that they don't have to make the steps. And uh, this, I think, is, will be a, a tremendous step backwards. I think that um, the um, peace plan that was brought up by the uh, Trump administration was very important in that it focused on trying to have, uh, trying to reward the Palestinians to uh, make moves uh, with the promise of economic uh, improvement, which would be good for the Palestinians, be good for the region, be good for the Israelis as well. And um, I would not like to lose that. And I think there's a danger of losing that now. And I am worried about uh, Israel's welfare regarding Iran. Um, although we have seen uh, uh, interviews in the press uh, from Mr. Biden regarding the opening negotiations again with the JCPOA, uh, regarding the JCPOA and perhaps making a better deal than it was last time. Um, I think uh, that is very well intentioned. And if he is going to open the, reopen the negotiations, definitely there should be a strive for a better deal. We just saw um, the United Nations Security Council fail uh, with the help of our allies, of American allies, to uh, continue extend the arms embargo against Iran. Uh, the Russians, the Chinese, some of our European friends are now running to sell them all kinds of dangerous uh, uh, apparatus. And um, what um, Mr. Biden is going to have to do, I think, is stand very strong in face of that uh, uh, left wing of the Democratic Party. It is a battle, as uh, I think both Eric and uh, Steve have alluded to. It's been a battle in the Democratic Party, which now has three kinds of left. You have the normal Democratic left that we all know and well for so many years. You have an economic and class uh, uh, aware kind of left, and you have the so-called woke left, which concentrates more on race and on um, uh, gender and such aspects, which um, uh, I think loses sight uh, of what uh, of what is really crucial. Very often, I think we need to um, put a lot. It depends on Mr. Biden and what kind of cab cabinet he's going to choose. Who will be in charge of the Pentagon? Who will be in charge of defense? Will the military, the military relationship to Israel, sustain itself? Uh, what about National Security Council? Who will be in charge there? What, is, what will be the attitude of that person? So I think uh, we have to be concerned, and I agree with Steve. We, have, we cannot be complacent. We have to keep fighting this battle to make sure that the platform, the Democratic Party platform in this, in this election uh, was sufficiently to, uh, our, to making us reassured uh, that took a battle. So... Uh, we cannot take anything for granted. We have to stay vigilant, and we have to keep speaking our minds. Okay. I, I want to go to David in one minute, but I want you to just sort of fill in one point you made. You began to say a lot has to do with who the cabinet is, who's the head of the Pentagon, who's national security advisor. I want you to give me, give our audience an example of what, one type of person in that position would do that would not be injurious to Israel? And what would a different person with a different philosophy do that would be inju injurious 
to Israel. Because when I hear you say it's about the cabinet and security council advisor, I say, to, I say to myself, the audience isn't going to have a clue what you mean. But you're imagining something. I'm so imagining I, w something. I want you to articulate what you imagine. I'm imagining that uh, we will be very unhappy, Israel will be very unhappy if someone is appointed, if people appointed to these important sensitive positions don't have the understanding of the importance of the special relationship that was mentioned, the special America-Israel relationship. What would happen? What, what? Like we could have like we had with Zbigniew of Brzezinski, who I think we can mention now because he's gone. Okay, but what and, would happen? Suppose the wrong person. That, that Israel might not be seen as valuable as a strategic asset as she truly is. And, then, and, therefore, and, that, and therefore what? And therefore we wouldn't have the support uh, in the government for uh, Israel's qualitative military edge, for uh, Israel's, uh, uh, for America ensuring Israel's uh, security in exchange for the invaluable information and uh, uh, security she brings back to the United States. Okay. So, David, you've now heard three people, and I want you to feel free to go anywhere you want. You understand the thrust of my question for you is, do you understand the extent to which people who voted for Trump, 80-some percent of them, did so because Israel is their prime concern, and they feel Israel is in jeopardy without the Trump perspective. In general, how do you see that issue? I think the, the question of how somebody is going to view the Trump versus Biden administrations vis-a-vis -vis Israel depends a lot on what are the policy prescriptions that they subscribe to and that they'd like to see. I would divide it generally into four separate categories that are important to take into account. And in each of them, there are real orthodoxies that the Trump administration has really turned on their head. And the question is going to be, what are the chances that the Biden administration is going to revert back to the orthodoxies or whether they're going to continue in this sort of new and exciting world that the Trump administration has brought okay, to the table? Okay, exactly, and I want you to spell them out. So let me tell you what they are, okay? First of all, vis-a-vis -vis Iran. And I'm talking from a bird's eye view before we talk about the nuclear deal, before we talk about um, you know, the specifics of what an Iran policy looks like. Here's the question. Do you view Iran as a positive or negative influence in the region? Do you view Iran, even if not a positive influence, as an influence that needs to be balanced with other influences in a region in order to sort of create wider stability. I think it's not a stretch to say that this was the Obama administration's approach. Or do you view Iran as basically the source of everything bad that's happening in the region? Certainly that's the position of the Israeli government and, and it has been the position of the Trump administration. Reverting back to either of the two prior positions, the orthodoxies, uh, either under the Obama administration or previous administrations could end up with a very harmful and damaging policy. And this is not just about Iranian expansionism or nuclear aspirations. It also has direct implications on things like the Abraham Accords, because we know that what led the Gulf states and other moderate Arab states scuttling into the arms of the Israelis and under the American umbrella is their shared fear of what Iranian nuclear ambitions could bring to the table. 
And it was the Trump administration's sort of very straightforward uh, rejection of Iran and embrace of the moderate states that gave them that security, that feeling of security they needed to take risks. You cannot take risks, we know, without a sense of security. A country cannot take those risks without a sense of security. So that's the first major concern about the incoming Biden administration. The second is about the Palestinian issue. Again, we can talk about details, two-state solutions. We can talk about the Kushner peace initiative, other peace initiatives. At the end of the day, here's the question. Do you view the Palestinian issue as being at the center of Middle East conflict or not? Do you see um, the Palestinians as having agency on their own? Do you see the bulk, the onus of responsibility for this conflict on the Palestinians and on the Israelis? And the answer to those fundamental questions in the case of the Trump administration was that we are unabashedly pro-Israel and we are not here to be an honest broker. Israel is our ally. The Palestinians are not our ally. Um, We're here to push, to leverage, to do whatever it takes to bring about a good result. We do not see the Palestinian issue as the center of the conflict. It's a marginal issue. Um, And certainly we don't see any harm in leveraging and pushing and pressuring the Palestinians as much as necessary. Again, there's a real fear that the Biden administration will revert to longstanding orthodoxies on this particular issue itself and lose a potential opportunity that has so far been achieved under the Trump administration. Now, the third issue, which is an issue where the Biden administration will probably do better than the Trump administration, and that is in the wider Middle East, the Trump administration and President Trump himself had a tendency towards isolationism. And this was expressed in a number of areas. Most concerning was the pullout of troops, American troops from Syria that held a vital strategic position, certainly the abandonment of the Kurds and a few other issues related uh, to, to wider Middle Eastern security and specifically engagement of American forces strategically, not necessarily putting blood and treasure at risk, but strategic use of American force in the region has been something that even um, President Trump has even been reluctant to use, whereas previous administrations have used quite effectively. Obviously for Israel, it's a major concern, the buildup of Iranian forces in Syria and on Israel's border in the Golan Heights. And I think there was probably one area where there was friction, yes, behind the scenes between Israel and the Trump administration over the steps that the president took on that front. And the fourth issue is the issue that Betty brought up, and that is strength, strength of character. And the strength of character and the question of strength of character does not just apply to standing up to the radical wing of the party. And we know that there is a radical wing waiting, chomping at the bit, waiting to go and, and impose and push and force its positions which include demonizing Israel and delegitimizing Israel and promoting BDS, etc., that they're looking to sort of gain a foothold for those ideas in the Democratic Party. Um, But it also means making really tough decisions. Would a Biden, President Biden, have what it would take to move the embassy against all other considerations, against all other voices? Would he have what it takes? to pull the trigger on a Qasem Soleimani, the head of the IRGC, International Terror Organization? Would he have what it takes to label that group as a terror organization like the Trump administration does? There were a lot of fundamental moves that were crucial for safety and security in the region 
that President Trump bucked all convention and criticism in order to make those decisions. And the big question remains as to whether President Biden will have the strength of character, the steel of spine, to be able to make decisions like that as well. So out of the four fundamental issues, I would say three of them lean in favor of the Trump administration, one of them favor in favor of the Biden administration. But certainly when you do the math, it's very understandable why supporters of President Trump and those that are very concerned with Israel's future feel that they're in a position of uncertainty and trepidation about Israel's future under a Biden administration. You know, you def well, the way you define the problems is that there is reason you understand why people would fear because of attitudes towards Iran, Palestinians, and strength of character. It's interesting. Most people, when they hear the phrase strength of character, think they're going to talk, you're talking about how a president comports himself in front of a, you know, in front of the media. But you were talking about strength of character in terms of the ability to take certain actions which could be, which might be perceived as bold, but also necessary. But yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted, I wanted to ask you. Yes. Of the three fears, where you think the the fear is more on the side of Biden not being what Trump would be. Iran, Palestinians, and strength of character. Are you, is that an academic fear? Or do you say, in essence, these are things which any Jew who is afraid of them, you understand they're not stupid to have these fears. And in some way, I assume they frighten you. Yeah, absolutely. They should they should not just frighten anybody who is concerned about the future of Israel security, but they should concern everybody who has hope uh, in a brighter future for the region. Um, you know, if I'm advising President Biden, I would say to him, your first order of business in the Middle East should be to send emissaries to the capitals of moderate Sunni Arab states and of course to Israel and say, listen, we disagreed with the Trump administration on a hell of a lot, but on Middle East policy, we're gonna keep it going. On Iran, and ultimately the impact uh, is going to be felt on the Abraham Accords. Right now you have the Saudis, the Moroccans, the Omanis sitting and waiting. They're asking a fundamental question before they feel prepared to dive in to new relations with Israel, new relations with the West, like the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Sudan have done. They need to know where this new administration stands. On Iran, they need to know that this new administration has their back. With those reassurances, President Biden can score some early diplomatic victories in the Middle East that he can, came, that he can claim credit for. Do you expect Biden to take that stand? I don't but I'm waiting to be pleasantly surprised. Okay. I really, truly hope that he does. Okay. And I think a lot of that, the answer to that question is gonna depend on who he surrounds himself with, as, as Betty outlined earlier. The Palestinian issue is not a marginal issue. Um, for two reasons. Uh, number one, and the, to me the most central one, is that if, 
Sure, Israel can uh, continue making arrangements with other Arab states. That's all well and good and should be encouraged. But ultimately, the presence of millions of Palestinians who do not want to be ruled by Israel uh, on territory that Israel is currently occupying, that poses a mortal existential threat to Israel's future as a Jewish state and its future as a democracy. It cannot be ignored. That's one thing. Second, and the flip side of that, is that uh, I've always argued that the only realistic solution long-term to peace in the Middle East lies in a two-state solution. Ignoring the Palestinians is basically saying, you don't want a state, we don't want to help you, we'll pull away from it, let's focus our energies elsewhere. The absence of a two-state solution long-term, again, it means the elimination of any serious solutions to the Middle East conflict. Israel is left perpetually uh, in, a, in a situation of war. So in that respect, um, uh, the uh, David's point about concern with the Biden administration continue the policies of what might be called, uh, what Jared Kushner referred to as outside in, uh, sort of ignoring the Palestinian issue and saying, no, it's not central to the conflict. I disagree with that completely. First of all, um, just to clarify, the point that I'm making is not that the Palestinian issue isn't an important one. It's that it's the question as to whether you can move on and deal with other things in the region. Um, you have to, does that have to be the center and the starting point and the seed for everything that takes place? Or is that or are there lots of other things that can be done in the meantime while we wait for the Palestinians? And I think the second point is this. For 40 years, or however long that we've been engaged in this discussion, um, if you want to achieve a two-state solution, if that is your goal, what the Trump administration proves is that the way that, that in successive administrations have been going about it has not worked, and that you need to consider the possibility that the Palestinians have self-agency. And pressuring the Palestinians is likely to bring about greater results than continuously placing all of the onus on the Israelis. It's wrong to say that the Trump administration ignored the Palestinians. They presented a, a serious peace plan and they began to build a environment, a climate in the region that would put the Palestinians in a position that either they get on board with this or they're gonna be left out in the cold. And I think given some more years, you would have seen some great results in terms of the Palestinian attitude towards that approach. And if the Biden administration continues that approach, this is their best chance of getting real results from the Palestinians. Uh, look, on, on the Palestinians, I'm, I'm simply going to say in passing, I, I, I don't think the Palestinians uh, 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 were presented with a serious plan by the Trump administration. I think it was a very bad plan. Uh, I, I, having said that, I'm not particularly sympathetic to the Palestinians, their ability to agree to anything. But uh, the plan that Trump put, put forward uh, was not serious. But I, I really want to focus on on Iran, because I, I don't accept the conventional wisdom that uh, the Trump administration somehow was wonderful on Iran. And I, I, I want to uh, put forth a very simple proposition. Israel is much worse off now, uh, four years into the Trump administration, uh, than it was four years ago on the Iranian question. Uh, Iranian development of nuclear weapons has resumed, the enrichment of, of of uranium uh, has resumed. Iran is doing everything that it was doing before. Now, Biden is saying that he's considering renewing the nuclear agreement and also intends to, uh, uh, to upgrade it. Uh, the approach is easing sanctions in return for concessions. This should be seen as an opportunity for Israel 
Uh, it should make contact with the Biden administration. It should uh, start negotiating on what the sanctions will be, what the concessions will be. But again, we aren't in a good place on Iran. We're in a bad place on, on Iran. Israel is very uh, vulnerable. We have to do something about the nuclear development. We have to do something about the situation in Lebanon. Uh, I'm, I'm much more optimistic precisely because of Biden and because of my negative take on where uh, the Trump administration led us. Betty, do you have any disagreement with what Eric just said? Uh, I think, uh, well, I do. I've, I've uh, watched uh, Iran, prestige, support in Europe, in, uh, uh, in other countries uh, go down over the past few years. I think that the message to Iran, uh, as they get played by Russia, get played by Turkey, sometimes they're on the same side of something, sometimes they're on the opposite side of something, uh, has been very deleterious to the whole region. Is Israel worse off? I don't know that Israel is worse off because during all this time, the JCPOA did not prevent Iran from enriching uranium. It's been happening all the time. It did not prevent Iran from uh, fostering and supporting terrorism. Terrorism has been ongoing all the time. And uh, the, the, Iran has been building missiles constantly. Uh, there's a whole new slew of them uh, based on the uh, North Korean model, which is, uh, has been terrifying. So. I don't see that Israel is really worse off uh, four years into this administration. I just see the ineffectiveness of the JCPOA. Um, what I'm deeply disappointed in our uh, European allies who speak out of uh, uh, two sides of their mouths. On the one hand, Mr. Macron has now uh, denounced terrorism in a way uh, that he has never been done before. Still, he will not yet recognize Hezbollah as a terrorist organization because Total wants to drill offshore in Lebanon. And uh, uh, the Lebanese have to make a hard choice about Hezbollah, which I don't, seem them be, uh, I don't see them willing to do. And I don't see France willing to do. So I think um, it's not a thing that the United States can really do alone. If Mr. Biden wants to renegotiate, and uh, really uh, make a difference uh, in the JCPOA, which has so far failed as far as I'm concerned. I think that he will have to make a major, major uh, progress with our allies, which the Obama-Biden uh, administration did not do. And unfortunately, the Trump administration did not do either, given the um, European penchant for putting uh, earnings over uh, the security, the security of Europe. Eric, any comment? Look, I, I, I believe that, uh, of course, there's been a failure of the of our European allies. Uh, I'm also suggesting that is at the same time a failure of the of the Trump administration. From the very beginning, instead of acting unilaterally, it should have gone to the Europeans, put pressure on them to join uh, with the American administration and in, in a common plan. Trump was insistent for a whole variety of reasons, most of them political, uh, that he was going to uh, do it on his own, uh, walk out of the agreement, make a splash, and he did all of that. But by virtue of the fact that he was acting uh, unilaterally, uh, he forfeited the cooperation that was absolutely essential with, uh, with Europeans. And uh, they then could ignore the uh, violations of the agreement 
because they said Trump acted on his own. Okay, the Biden interesting... has to repair has to repair those those uh, alliances. He has to bring the Europeans along with him. I think Betty was indicating that uh, that's his challenge now. I'm simply saying let's let's not see Trump as the grand hero here. By acting on his own, he made it virtually certain that that he was not going to succeed in in uh, what he was setting out to do, and he was going to make Israel more vulnerable. And okay, and that that's Eric's main point here. Mains, yeah. Betty, what Eric is saying is Israel is worse off in terms of the Iran deal than it was when Trump took office, and he does not feel anything Trump did, including withdrawing from the deal, helped the problem. David, what's your reaction to the analysis that Eric offers? Well, look, here's the thing, Eric. I appreciate your perspective, and I know that that's the perspective of the architects of the Iran deal themselves, but it is not the perspective of the Israelis. And when I say the Israelis, I do not mean the Netanyahu government. I mean practically all of them. I mean, you'll recall when the Iran deal was being negotiated, um, Bushy Herzog, who was then leading the opposition, went on a tour of Europe where he said, um, I disagree with Netanyahu on everything, but when it comes to Iran, we are all Likud. We're all the same. Uh, in the Israeli military establishment, diplomatic establishment, political establishment, across the aisle, the Israeli military, of course, um, the view is that the Trump administration's approach is the correct approach. Why? Because while the approach that you're suggesting might work, might work well with perhaps uh, a, 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 a democratic ally, if there were negotiations, for example, they view Iran and the Iranians as a unique case and a unique threat um, as an irrational actor, not a rational actor, as being religiously motivated, as being unbending and ideologically driven. And of course, their experience in the region tells them that there is only one language that they respond to. And the truth is that the only time that Iran ever suspended its nuclear deal or its nuclear program was in 2003 when the United States was invading Iraq and they thought that they might be next. Now, I'm not advocating military action right now, but what I'm saying is that the Iranians only respond. Their track record has showed us when their back is against the wall, not just the back against the wall, when they are down for the count and the ref is standing over them and has reached number nine. And that's obviously what the Israelis have been pushing for. It's been the approach of the Trump administration. And based on the history and the track record of dealings with Iran, they believe that that's the only thing that'll work. I want to suggest that this is sort of an internal contradiction in what, what you're suggesting. First of all, uh, let me say that at, at the time that the agreement was drafted and approved, my sources suggest, and a number of press sources, and we'd have to obviously check this out, is that the military leadership in Israel, in fact, was supportive of the deal and did not oppose the deal. It's not, not, I'm not talking about the political leadership. I'm talking about the military leadership. You made a reference to that. I don't think it's correct. Uh, we, we'd obviously have to, to uh, uh, research that further. Second of all, look, I'm, I have no illusions whatever about the Iranians. And everything that you say is correct in terms of what they respond to. But the problem all along has been Trump never had any intention 
of using military force. I mean, the ultimate logic is because they can't be trusted, that you have to have somebody who's going to be prepared to take military action against them because that is what will bring them around. But the reason it doesn't work is Trump never had any intention of doing so for reasons that you yourself uh, suggested. That being the case, the best possible alternative to that is broad cooperation between the uh, Americans and their European allies. The Russians and the Chinese are gone. There's, there's no possibility that they're going to participate. Uh, but our European allies, you know, that despite all the problems that Betty rightly mentions, nonetheless, they're democratic. The moral arguments still carry some sway there. They could have been brought along in the past and they could still be brought along now. I want to suggest that's the best we can do because there's not going to be any military attack from the American side. That's simply a reality. I'm not endorsing that. I'm simply saying that's the reality of our world at the moment, and therefore the best possible coalition is democratic countries coming together to take on Iran. Okay. Steve Bain, do you have anything you want to add to this Iranian discussion? Look, I, I've, always, uh, I've always been deeply conflicted as to what, uh, what should be done with respect to Iran. To me, it's, it's not a choice between good and bad. It's a choice between bad and worse. And I'm not sure exactly what is the bad and what, what is the worse. Um, when uh, Eric says that uh, Israel is worse off today, I'm not sure. I really can't. I can't embrace that position or negate it at the same time. You're not sure? I'm not sure that Israel is worse. I'm not sure that Israel is better. Um, this, the problem still remains, namely that Iran is on a road towards acquiring a nuclear bomb. The consensus position in Israel, as Dovin mentioned, I think quite correctly, on both sides, is that an Iranian bomb is unacceptable. That's a position that was shared by American politicians as well. What's changed now with Biden? The, the honest answer is, is that this, the glimmer of hope, and Dovin sort of alluded to this, is that there's a greater, a greater sense of internationalism, that uh, instead of the unilateralism that Trump championed, there's a greater sense that perhaps we can rebuild a coalition uh, that would uh, essentially apply some leverage towards Iran. Uh, Elliot Abrams this week, who's obviously a member of the Trump administration, he said as much in an interview we gave in, the, uh, in Israel where he said the possibility of affecting uh, uh, leverage upon Iran is, is there, a new, a new agreement, if you will, if the administration is willing to use the appropriate leverage. Is Biden prepared to do that? I don't know. What is, I'm sorry, what is appropriate leverage? Well, going back to it, again, uh, Eric is correct. No one has a, no one's of a mindset right now to use military leverage. Of By leverage, you're talking about as soft power, economic leverage. Um, uh, is Biden prepared to do that? I would think he would be in, in cooperation with other forces, particularly in Europe. Will that materialize? I honestly don't know. First of all, important to note that while it's unlikely that the Americans would conduct a strike on Iranian nuclear facilities, it was always seen as important for the Iranians to believe that the Americans might allow the Israelis to go ahead and do that. Second of all, in terms of relying heavily on the, on the Europeans, not a great idea. They were very happy to get back, jump into bed with Iran, do business with Iran. They were working on mechanisms to supersede sanctions. You know, they were really not helpful partners in terms of raising pressure on the Iranians. Steve, will Biden move the U.S. Embassy out of Jerusalem? He's on record as saying he won't, he won't, he won't do that. Uh, look, again, a consensus position is that the embassy belongs in Jerusalem. There was a longstanding caution about it because they felt that uh, it would incite violence throughout the Middle East. 
Okay. Does do any of the three of you disagree with Steve, or do you all feel Joe Biden is not likely to move the Israeli embassy out of Jerusalem? I'll go a step further. I don't think he can. Um, it, it was moved as an act of Congress, I'm sure you're aware, in 1995. Um, and there was in place, by the way, by overwhelming majority, some 350 in the House and um, I think 93 or 95 in the Senate. Um, there, was, there, there was sort of an option for a presidential waiver on national security grounds six months at a time, which was exercised by successive presidents. But now that it's not being exercised, that cat is out of the bag, the, the embassy's been moved, you know, he'd have to come along and say, it's in the national security interest to, to move it back or something in defiance of a, a, a very overwhelming uh, majority in Congress. I just don't think that there's any way that that's a, a, a battle that he wants to uh, waste political capital. Okay. On. I, he, has no, he has no intention of doing it. There's absolutely no possibility, I want to suggest to you. Okay, so all four of you agree, correct, Betty? The yes, because, you, first of all, the, the bill, uh, the uh, 1995 Israel Embassy Act, was dull, Moynihan. It was bipartisan and very strong, uh, strongly supported by both parties, and as well now, by now, they've also sold the uh, house in Herzliya, that belonged to the uh, American. That was the that belonged to the United States State Department. That was the home of the ambassador. So that's finished. So to open all that all over again would be a royal pain. Okay, Betty, will Biden say that Israeli communities on the West Bank are in fact illegal? I don't know if he would say that. Uh, and, and this goes back to the question of will he uh, allow himself to be pressured by the more left-leaning people in the party? Uh, we, uh, is, does that, uh, is that the opinion of Mrs. Pelosi and others who uh, will try to uh, advance their position? It's hard to say. I don't know what he will do. Okay, I mean, you say you don't know. Eric, don't. Yeah. Trump said that the communities on the West Bank are not illegal. That, has, that was argued by some that this was a change in American foreign policy. The reality is that foreign policy has gone back and forth and back and forth. Do you think Biden will now say Israeli communities on the West Bank are in fact illegal? I don't think that, that the linguistic dimension of this is important. I think he'll stay away from those kinds of battles. The key is what is he gonna do? What is he gonna do? Uh, my own uh, view is he wants to preserve the option of the two-state solution. He realizes that the progress is hugely unlikely now. And so what he'll be mostly concerned about is making sure that actions aren't taken that make a two-state solution impossible. So okay. he will uh, oppose additional settlements. My own view is that that's not going to be much of a stretch. In other words, the Abraham Accords, um, they, they prohibit... Uh, annexation, but by implication, they also strongly di uh, discourage additional settlement. I understand. And I understand. Steve Bain, the same question. Will the Biden administration, and, and I do disagree with Eric that it's just language. There is something very profound in the American administration saying that the Israelis have 
are not breaking international law when they create Malay Adumim or Efrat or Ariel. I'm going to say it again. Do you think the Biden administration will say that Israeli communities on the West Bank are illegal? The legality of them is really a question. It is important because it suggests if you say they're illegal, you're delegitimizing the entire endeavor, um, whether it's uh, a, a remote settlement or whether it's a settlement that's near the border. So Absolutely. the legality question is by no means irrelevant. Right. The really relevant, though, is the issue of wisdom. Uh, in other words, if I were advising Biden right now, I would say, no, it's not helpful to say they're illegal. Don't say it. You've got opinions by respected international jurists who tell you they are legal. Don't, don't, don't say it one way or another. What you should be saying is that every settlement pushes Israel one further step away from where Israel needs to be, which is to be poised towards a two-state solution. My comment to American Jewry and its leadership is that while the two-state solution is really not on the horizon at present, our job as Jewish leaders is to keep the idea alive. Additional settlements make that much more difficult. Okay. So me, it's, uh, the real answer is that, uh, no, don't say they're illegal, but certainly say that it's not wise policy. Fair enough. David, same question. Will the Biden administration say Israeli communities on the West Bank are illegal? I think there's a very good chance that they'll reverse um, the State Department's new designation under the Trump administration, yes. And what will be the impact or import of that change? Well, I think, you know, in the end of the day, the, the difference that it made to categorize it in one way or another is less practical in terms of, you know, whether it changes anything on the ground and more sort of whether it gives a tool to Israel's detractors in the United Nations and into the, in, in the international community. So, um, you know, when you talk about Israel's presence in the West Bank, um, do you speak of it as disputed territory or do you speak of it as an illegal occupation? And obviously, if it's an illegal occupation, you're accusing the Jewish state of living in sin every waking hour. If it's a disputed territory, then you're referring to an unresolved conflict that you'd like to see the parties resolve. So in that sense, it makes a huge difference in terms of establishing the framework of discussion over this issue around the world. My understanding is that there are people who felt that when Barack Obama, as he left office, permitted a Security Council vote that could have been vetoed by America, and we would have expected it, to be vetoed by America. Barack Obama decided, made a decision, there would be no veto, U.S. veto, in the Security Council over the issue of settlements. And part of what I often hear from those who are critics of the Obama administration and were supportive of, of the Trump administration was that what Barack Obama did was make East Jerusalem, the, the Western Wall, was now in uh, was now in territory illegally. The the um, the, the Security Council resolution called any Israeli communities on the east side of the Green Line, which is often called the sixty seven borders, any such community 
was illegal. Now, there are many American Jews who've gone to the Western Wall and they don't realize they're on the other side of the Green Line. But for many Jews, it was, it was like a knife stuck in their back, a bag of Israel, as Obama is leaving office. That, was, that is, seems to me to be a significant perspective that the United States can bring either supportive of Israeli communities on the West Bank or not. And the other thing I'd like David to begin with, but then I want to hear any of the four of you comment on, the Trump administration never said it was against the two-state solution. And what it said was, those who were supportive of the Trump administration argued that the sovereignty that Trump was in some way giving a green light to on the West Bank was only in areas which everyone understood would be part of Israel in a two-state solution. And that therefore, although I understand one arguing there should be no new settlements, I don't understand the argument that suggests that the Trump plan or the Trump administration was against a two-state solution. The only difference was, and I think Dov had said this to be at one point, the Trump administration's position was, look, the Palestinians have had opportunity after opportunity, and they, no matter what the United States has done or offered, no matter what Israel has offered, the Palestinians have been unwilling to make any serious effort at creating peace with the, with the state of Israel. And Eric, you've said something similar like that many times on JBS. And so Trump said, in the meantime, we're going to support first an economic plan, which if the Palestinians bought into it, could bring $50 billion of aid to the Palestinian world. And in addition, we're going to try to create um, relationships between Israel and a number of Arab states, beginning with the United Arab Emirates, which also can create stability in the region. And perhaps the Palestinians will be moved to join in this process. And if they are going to join, as much of the West Bank is still available as there was before, and we'll work something out. Now, David, to what extent am I saying it wrong? Correct me if, if I've described it incorrectly, and speak to the issue of how was anything done over the last four years that would make a two-state solution less possible than it was four years ago? In the end of the day, what the Trump administration recommended was not that different from what we've seen before, except that it took into account all of the practicalities and really the modern facts on the ground. You can't come up with a, a solution that is based on how things looked 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. There were major settlement blocks. There are new facts on the ground. There is moving hundreds of thousands of, of settlers out of the way, simply not practical. There was just as much land there. There were land swaps. There was a practical idea about connecting Gaza and the West Bank. So what they brought to the table, I would say, was a very modern and updated version of the two-state solution. 
But what they did, and, and also a practical version, but what they did that was completely different from all others is that they, they upped the ante. They know that the way that the Palestinians have conducted themselves over the last decades leaves room in the minds of Israelis and others in the, in the, in the international community, room for serious doubts as to their sincere intentions to actually try and create a peace deal, or are they just using the diplomatic process to make certain gains in order to enhance their position, but, but continue the struggle. So their approach is, look, we're going to increase the carrots and we're going to increase the sticks. You said it right, Mark, they put an incredible incentive on the table, an economic package that would revitalize the region in an unprecedented way, a package that nobody has spoken about in the past. And at the same time, they implemented what I would call a policy of cascading hammers, where basically one after the other, there are repercussions to the Iranians, uh, un sorry, to the Palestinians' unwillingness to come to the table. They said, look, we're here, we want to have this discussion, we want your response, we want your practical suggestions. If you're not going to come to the table and show that you're serious, we are just going to move on. Yes. In fact, the way that the plan laid it out, four years' time, in the final year of, if there would have been another four years of a Trump administration, in the final year, the limitation on new settlements would have expired, according to the Trump plan. And the Trump administration would have basically said, look, it's been this amount of time, we've given you your chance. At this stage, we're just going to let the Israelis do whatever they want. You have shown us clearly that you're not serious about making a good faith effort towards peace here. The deal of the century that put forward a two-state plan. The pro First of all, I think it, it's probably not a great idea for us to be involved in trying to draw lines for, you know, what that two-state plan uh, ought to look like. I've got, Never stopped I, I, us before. <laughs> I acknowledge that. The good news is, ultimately, it led to the Abraham Accords as an alternative to the so-called two-state plan. And uh, as we've, you know, as I've already indicated, uh, among the many advantages of the Abraham Accords, which I, I think were the greatest accomplishment of the Trump administration, was at least an implied understanding that there weren't going to be additional settlements. And at this point, that's about the best we can do, and I'll take it. Uh, I, I agree with the negative assessments of Palestinians, as I've already said. That being so, in the absence of progress, if there are no additional settlements now, which seems to be where we find ourselves, uh, then that may be uh, the best that we can get, and that'll have to be satisfactory. Uh, I think some history here is relevant. Uh, the 1947 UN partition plan called for a Jewish state that was non-contiguous. Tons of people saying it was not viable, not economically viable. Why did Ben-Gurion accept it? He said, it's a point of departure. You know, it's a point of entry. Let's attain the notion of sovereignty, and we can figure some things out along the way. The problem, I think, in terms of the, um, the, re the reception given to the Trump plan was that the Palestinians dismissed it completely out of hand without saying, no, these particular terms are not acceptable to us, but let's sit down and talk about it. In other words, it gave one more reason, again, for Palestinian rejectionism. That's essentially why the two-state solution is not, has never taken off, because you've never had a Palestinian leadership prepared to say once and for all, we want to live alongside, in sovereignty, alongside a Jewish state known as the State of Israel. So in that respect, I was disappointed with the uh, with continued Palestinian rejectionism. You won't have a two-state solution until you can somehow break that. Um, that said, uh, obviously, uh, there were a lot of problems with, uh, with discontinuity, with uh, economic hardship, 
but at the very base, at the very minimum, it should have been a basis for for taking off a discussion that never took place because it was rejected out of hand. Steve, will the Biden administration restore funding for the Palestinians? That certainly is the uh, you know the the ethos and the atmospheric. I think the Jewish community would be correct to uh, uh, speak in terms of the Taylor Force Act, namely. Um, you know, what the Israelis call pay to slay. In other words, funding for, um, uh, you know, for, for, for families whose, uh, whose family members have committed acts of terrorism and are therefore now in jail. Um, uh, the issue of funding for the Palestinian Authority per se, um, you know, is going to be viewed primarily as a humanitarian issue. That's first and foremost. I think the point of entry, if you will, of um, if you're given misgivings about that, which I am, the real point is the Taylor Force Act. Namely, should families whose members have committed terrorism, should they be taking some of the funds that America's been giving and give it over to those families? That, that'd be my major... Well, fun, uh, but major funds problem. are fungible. You understand of that. Of course they're fungible. Yeah, exactly. So but, are, you saying, are you saying it would bother you if the Biden administration restored funding? Without, uh, without this sense of um, uh, families whose members have committed terrorism should not be, given, not be rewarded for having done so. That's my, my major concern. Humanitarian issues, of course, I understand. Betty, are you concerned, and would it bother you if the Biden administration restored funding for Palestinians? Very much. Um, I was one of the first uh, proponents of the Taylor Force Act. Met with Senator Lindsey Graham on it, decided to promote it um, before some other organizations came out in favor of it. I think that if monies go back, uh, that are fungible and wind up again in the hands of terrorists themselves while they're in jail and their families. It would be a catastrophe, not only for the rewards that it provides for terrorism, um, but also as an example to the rest of the world. We've seen less money going to the Palestinians now from Arab countries. We've seen less money now coming from the EU uh, to the Palestinians. We've seen less money coming from certain uh, uh, European countries, Scandinavian countries, who've decided also to adopt some form of uh, the Taylor Force Act. So uh, it would be very important that these funds not be uh, restored. And again, it would only be more incentive for the Palestinians to keep uh, rejecting. And uh, as uh, I agree with Steve, that as long as there is the Palestinian rejectionism, that there cannot be a two-state solution. David, your answer to the same question about would you be upset if the Biden administration restored funding to the Palestinians? Absolutely. And when you talk about funding to the Palestinians, um, what your listeners should be aware that there are a few different categories. So, you know, there is direct aid. There's also aid for UNRWA, which is a UN agency that oversees support for the Palestinians and which, in my view and in the view of Israelis and, and many others, is actually a perpetuator of Palestinian um, misery and certainly um, keeping, expanding and growing the refugee challenge, Palestinian refugee challenge that many in the international community want to solve. So I think on, on both fronts, uh, those funds have not been used towards the course of peace. Those funds are used towards initiatives that perpetuate the conflict it's definitely not money well spent on behalf of any American administration. Okay, Eric, you've heard basically people say they're not, they wouldn't be happy with it. Would you be happy with it? 
I would be happy with a package deal that would uh, stipulate a number of things. Uh, and I, I think this is what the Biden administration has in mind. I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, President Biden will uh, insist that the PA renew security ties with Israel. Uh, I think it'll insist the PA take the tax money that Israel collects for them. Their failure to do so was one of the most foolish things the PA uh, uh, has, has done in recent years, among many other foolish things. Uh, I think there'll be certain conditions related to incitement. There certainly will be certain conditions related to, to payment to terrorists, as, as everybody had said. Uh, but I think all this will be put together. There will be some, some uh, aid that will be provided. And with the appropriate deal, um, uh, I, I think it will be good for Israel. The fact of the matter is Israel still deals with the PA and is reliant on the PA, a point that we, we often forget. And if appropriate conditions are in place, uh, I think it, it, it will be uh, good for, for Israel for basic humanitarian uh, needs to be met. Okay. I asked all four of you, and I appreciate your answer. So as we sort of wrap up, I'm going to ask each of you to give me a, a brief answer to this last observation, which is basically the observation of the entire program. People feel, the people who are worried, the American Jewish community that is worried, there's a, percent, a large percentage of American Jews are not worried. And by the way, a large, large percentage of American Jews, Israel, even if they care about Israel, it's not at the top of their list. And then there are Jews for whom Israel is, in, when I say the top of the list, it doesn't have to be number one. It is number one for, for many but it's among the top for many, many. And they, at the moment, are the ones who are most upset that Trump lost and Biden won because they feel Trump's attitude, perspective, his way of treating the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and Israel in general was one where, to use the phrase, there was no daylight, and they had their arms around each other. And boy, I heard from people all the time, don't trust Trump. He's going to ultimately do something. He's going to double-cross Israel. Well, now it's too late. He's going to be out, and he'll never have a chance to, to double-cross Israel. Up till now, he's not double-crossed Israel. The, the ultimate question that people are asking is, Will the Trump administration, will Harris-Biden come in with a perspective that will in some way be, again, injurious to the state of Israel by making it seem that the United States is more supportive of the Palestinians, despite the fact that all four of you, including Steve, including Eric, David and Betty, all of you have said, at the moment, there's no prospect for peace with the Palestinians. But the American Jew worries, the American Jews I'm talking about, worry that the Biden administration, which is influenced by a progressive left, in which intersectionality is an issue, and where color is an issue, that in some way, the Palestinians are going to be the darlings in a way that will 
flip pressure away from the Palestinians, which was the Trump administration's way of working at the issue. But no, it will now put, put uh, the pressure on Israel once again, and Israel will be the bad guy. Settlements will be the bad guy settlements. Israel will be intract. It will be Netanyahu's fault and Israel's fault that no one's coming to the peace table by the, for the Palestinians. So my last question, take as brief a time as you can to answer, is to what extent is what I've just described something you worry about? And if you don't worry about it, why? Betty, I begin with you. I do worry about it. Uh, repeat what I said before. Can uh, Mr. Biden stand up to the progressive, so-called progressive left in his party? Can he stand up for his uh, uh, good record on Israel that he's had all these years? Can he bring along leadership with him in his party? Can he surround himself in his government with the right kind of people? Uh, if it doesn't turn out that way, yes, I would be very worried. I don't want to go back to where we were with uh, the Obama administration and the independ independability and the unreliability, not only for Israel, but for the entire region. I understand. Steve Bain, your answer. Uh, short term, I don't see really much of a, uh, a concern. The, the administration is going to be consumed with the uh, COVID-19 virus and the economy the, the election was not fought on foreign policy to begin with. So if you're asking what's around the corner, my concern is, is really not there. I also think long term, at least in terms of the next four years, uh, Biden himself has been so committed to a strong U.S.-Israel relationship. It's naive to think there'll be zero daylight. It was never zero daylight, except during the four years of Trump. You know, that's a, a, a fair comment. But there, you know, during the years of George W. Bush, who was considered a very pro-Israel president, major differences in terms of the uh, Condoleezza Rice peace plan, in terms of the roadmap. My, my point is... is yeah, but nobody in the Bush administration made a point of it. Well, there have always been differences. There always will be. Uh, every administration, with the exception of Trump, was opposed to settlements. So in that respect, there's been continuity in American foreign policy. My concern really is over the course of what's happening in terms of both parties. Namely, that within the Democratic Party, support for Israel is relatively soft, and it can grow a lot softer, given the demographics of who's in the party, given the demographics of America, who are, who are the supporters of the party, who are its people in Congress. So my concern really is what's evolving over a period of time. Short term, I have a lot of faith and trust in Biden. He's a real true friend of Israel. Will he resist the pressures? Yes, I think he will. But those are the sort of things we need to be vigilant and watchful about. Long term, I think the terrible thing would be that pro-Israel support means conservative Republican support. Criticism of Israel, hostility to Israel, that means liberal Democratic support. David Afoon, your answer. Look, I think we've been spoiled over the last four years. And the, the nature of the relationship between the United States and Israel has been elevated to a new dimension. What we uh, can expect ahead is really a reversion to what it was before. 
Uh, and I'm not even talking about the Obama administration, which was particularly difficult for U.S.'s revelations. I'm talking about before that. Having said that, because of these immense paradigm shifts, which I articulated at the beginning of the program, uh, I would say that uh, as a supporter of Israel um, under a Biden administration, I would be mourning the lost opportunities. Um, if the Biden administration doesn't continue uh, in the gains that have been made in the region by the Trump administration, if it reverts back to the tired orthodoxies, conventional wisdom on the on the subject, um, would it be the worst ever administration that there's ever been for U.S.-Israel relationships? Certainly not. But would there be significant opportunities that had been squandered? Absolutely so, and that's something that I would mourn. Eric, I asked you to go first, so I give you the last word. Go ahead. First of all, I'm, I'm worried about isolationism and extremism on both the right and the left. We've focused a great deal on the left. I, I, I believe that there are dangers on the right. It's not our topic in particular. I'm not going to go into it. But uh, I do have those concerns. Uh, I think we need to be uh, uh, cautious and wary and eternally vigilant, as we, we've said previously. Uh, and we have to watch for potentially dangerous trends. But ultimately, I'm going to depend on the public record, uh, long established positions, the personal character of uh, Joe Biden and also of Kamala Harris. Uh, when you've heard somebody say things and watch them do things for 50 years, you have to draw the appropriate conclusions. And uh, that's uh, what, I, what I've done. I mean, Joe Biden talks about after the Yom Kippur War, going to talk to Golda Meir. And it's a wonderful story. And it's, it's utterly sincere. Uh, Golda Meir said to him, we have no place to go. And it was at that point that he began to express uh, Zionist uh, sentiment. Joe Biden is a lover of Israel in the old-fashioned way. I'm going to hang on to that, and it gives me optimism about the future. I love the four of you so much. It is so wonderful to hear the thoughtful way in which you address all four of you, an issue which is full of passion in the Jewish community. And... I've been saying on JBS over and over again, what pains me the most is the extent to which people who disagree with each other over political issues, Trump, not Trump, Trump, Biden, very often they can't talk to each other. And it's so un-Jewish. And I know it's what's going on in America as a whole, but that doesn't mean Jews have to succumb to that illness and then I have the four of you on, and you don't agree on everything, and yet there is an enormous amount of thought and respect, and I appreciate every single one of you, and I appreciate the insights you've shared with us on this edition of the Chaim. I hope all of you stay safe and be well, and that we will meet again on Zoom, unless this thing is over, when I'll be so thrilled to host all of you in our JBS studios again. But uh, Eric and Steve and Betty and David, thank you so much for making time for the JBS audience. 
and you be well, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. The thoughts of Steve Bame, Eric Yaffe, David Afoon, and Betty Ehrenberg. I hope you enjoyed hearing their perspectives on the future of the U.S.-Israeli relationship in a Biden-Harris administration. And I would love to know the extent to which you agreed with any of them, disagreed with any of them. So as always, I invite you to be in touch with me with any thoughts or comments you may have. You can send me an email to rabbigolub at jbstv.org, or you can write me at Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. And this is not the last time we'll be addressing this question, and we'll be watching as the months roll on to see how, if at all, the Israel-U.S. relationship changes and whether it changes for the better or for the worse. Until the next time, I'm Mark Golub. L'chaim, my friends, to life. L'chaim is a presentation of Jewish education in media. We would be pleased to send a complimentary DVD of this program to anyone who wishes to support JBS with a tax-deductible gift of $36, double chai, or more. Simply visit the JBS website at jbstv.org and click on the Donate button to make a donation by PayPal or your credit card. And please indicate the program for which you would like a DVD. Or you can send your tax-deductible check to JBS, Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. Or you can call the JBS pledge line at 833-MY-JBS-TV. That's 833-695-2788. And again, please remember to indicate which program you would like to receive with our compliments. We thank you for your kind support.